thank you for that generous introduction. And perhaps it's not too difficult to be a constitutional expert in a country without a constitution. <laughs> and um, my colleagues at Oxford used to say that a constitutional expert was a historian who'd given his phone number to the journalists. <laughs> but um, uh, as you say, Catherine, um, I, I'm going to talk about cabinet government because I think that is the most interesting and in, important part and influential part of the report. And I am somewhat daunted in a way. As you say, we're fortunate to have Lord Butler here, but he probably does know more about cabinet government than any other person alive. And um, though we've known each other for a long time, I've never been in the position before when he's been marking my homework. So uh, I, I hope he will temper justice with charity uh, when he does so. Um, I'm also slightly daunted that I've become rather critical of the Haldane report, which I didn't used to be, and critical of my own earlier views on it, so I have to eat some of my own words, which, as Winston Churchill once said, uh, eating, he said he ate a lot of words in his political career and it was a very healthy diet. Um, I've always rather admired the Oxford philosopher A.J. Eyre, the founder of logical positivism, who was asked uh, in a television series some years ago what he thought, looking back on his uh, main book, Language, Truth and Logic, what he thought his main weakness was, and he said he thought the main weakness in it was that all the arguments in it were completely false. And I think that about some of the things I have myself <laughs> written. Now, um, Haldane uh, was a cabinet minister in the great liberal government of 1905, first as Secretary of State for War and then as Lord Chancellor. And he, he was unfairly dismissed from this latter office by Asquith in 1915. And Haldane had been a student of German philosophy and had once incautiously declared that Germany was his spiritual home. And during the war, this was used against him by the Nigel Farages and Boris Johnsons of the day, and Asquith felt that he had to dismiss him in, amidst the popular clamour. Um, now, Haldane's exposure to German philosophy was not perhaps an unmixed blessing, and his philosophical writings were somewhat cloudy. And when he discussed army reform with military leaders before the First World War, the leaders asked him what sort of army he wanted, and he replied, a Hegelian army. <laughs> and that, let, that ended the discussion fairly quickly. And he did have a tendency to make obscure, I think, what had hitherto been perfectly clear. And after arguing one case in the House of Lords, one of the law lords said to him, I never know how incapable I was of understanding these things until I've heard your argument. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Pathway to Reality, uh, which H.G. Wells said was like a very large soap bubble that for some inexplicable reason fails to be iridescent. He also produced a translation of Schopenhauer, omitting an indelicate but vitally important discussion of perversion but unfortunately, Wells doesn't tell us what perversion he's talking about. He said that Haldane also found time to produce various books on philosophy. They are still spoken of with profound respect and a careful avoidance of particulars. In academic circles, um, they, uh, take no turning, they mark no turning point in the history of the human mind. They are far away from vulgar reality in a special universe of discourse. But it says he was a great army secretary and was acutely conscious of strategic capacity. But Wells then uh, undermines that compliment by saying that measured against such brains as those of Kitchener and French, 
almost anyone might be forgiven an acute consciousness of strategic capacity. Uh, the Haldane Committee was set up in 1917 by Lloyd George's wartime coalition government. It reported in 1918, and its report does have the virtue of being short and concise, though in my view this enabled it to elide over some fundamental problems. Now part one, which contains the essential thinking of the members, is just 13 pages long. Part two, which gives a proposed detailed division of departmental responsibilities, is just 62 pages. You can contrast that with the Chilcot report of 2016 on the Iraq War, which is 12 volumes containing over two and a half million words, longer than Shakespeare, the Bible, and War and Peace all put together, though not perhaps quite as well written as those works. Now, the terms of reference of the Haldane Committee were somewhat vague, and they were as follows. To inquire into the responsibilities of the various departments of the central executive government and to advise in what manner the exercise and distribution by the government of its functions should be improved. And I think that is an inquiry into the best organisation of cabinet government. Now, uh, we sometimes think of the pre-war Asquith government from 1908 to 1914, the peacetime government at any rate, with its great leaders, Asquith himself, Lloyd George and Churchill, and great achievements in founding the modern welfare state as a golden age of cabinet government from which we have since departed. And um, that was not what was thought of at the time. And Haldane himself did not regard it as that. And he wrote in his autobiography, the Asquith cabinet had been organised on an old system which I hope will never be restored. It was a congested body of about 20 in which the powerful orator secured too much attention. The Prime Minister knew too little the details of what had to be got through to be able to apportion the time required for discussion. Consequently, instead of ruling the Cabinet and regulating the length of the conversations, he left things much to themselves. Now, oddly, perhaps, uh, Haldane regarded the Cabinet of the first Labour government Ramsay MacDonald's minority government of 1924, in which he served once again as Lord Chancellor, as, and I quote, certainly the most businesslike cabinet I have ever sat in, saying that MacDonald is a better chairman than Asquith was, which may be due to the new system, he meant the cabinet secretariat. He keeps us to the point and gets hard decisions. Now, perhaps we should all be sceptical of golden ages. There was always a golden age of cabinet government in the past, when government was supposed to have operated in accordance with some preconceived ideal model and to have been much more effective and efficient than it is today. Sometimes the golden age of cabinet government is assumed to be the time of Harold Macmillan, though he was frequently accused of prime ministerial government, or Attlee, though he did not bother to tell some of his ministers that Britain was to become an atomic power, or Gladstone, though he drew up his first Home Rule Bill entirely by himself without consulting his cabinet at all. An extreme case, perhaps, to adopt the concept uh, of Lord Butler's, an extreme case of sofa government in which only one person occupied the sofa. And it remind, all reminds me of a story about golden ages told by the LSE professor Harold Lasky, who in a book published in 1951 gave the following answer to someone who told him that the backbench MP was no longer as influential as he had once been. Lasky recalled a dinner he had attended in 1923 
at which the host complained the backbench MP was but a shadow of what he had been in the days of Mr. Gladstone. He was rebuked by August Augustine Birrell, who had known Mr. Gladstone, and who reminisced about a dinner with the grand old man in the late 1880s, at which Gladstone told younger colleagues that the backbench MP was but a shadow <laughs> of what he had been in the golden age of the private member, which had been between the Reform Act of 1832 and the end of Sir Robert Peel's government in 1846. So the Asquith government was not, in Haldane's view, a model of what cabinet government should be. But there was a second model from 1916 under Lloyd George, the uh, normal cabinet system was suspended and a small wartime cabinet was established comprising mainly non-departmental ministers, one of which, Smuts, a South African leader, was not a member of either house. But that arrangement too was thought to be unsatisfactory in peacetime since it divorced the cabinet from most of the government departments. So both of the previous two models, the informal Asquith cabinet without a gender or minutes, and the wartime small Lloyd George cabinet seemed unsatisfactory, hence the Haldane Committee. But the committee had longer-term antecedents. Since the beginning of the century, there had been a lot of dissatisfaction with British institutional arrangements, and there were three main reasons for this. First, there was a growing fear of Germany, which had overtaken Britain in steel production and was threatening Britain's naval supremacy. And Churchill, in a letter to Prime Minister Asquith in 1908, said, Germany, with a harder climate and far less accumulated wealth, has managed to establish tolerable basic conditions for her people. She is organized not only for war, but for peace. We are organized for nothing except party politics. Second was the experience of the Boer War, which seems to have shown how inefficient the army was and how poor the quality of its potential recruits. In York, Sheffield and Leeds, nearly half of potential army recruits had failed the medical. In Manchester, nearly 60% of potential recruits had been rejected as physically unfit. And third, the work of empirical social scientists such as Booth and Rountree revealed disturbing facts about the condition of the people. And Booth, who was married to a cousin of Beatrice Webb, a member of the Haldane Committee, carried out rather impressionistic statistics of studies of London, beg your pardon, believing the figure of 25% in poverty given by the socialist Heinemann uh, was a, a, a wild overestimate. In fact, he found it to be an underestimate, and in a study in 1889, he found around 35% of those living in the East End of London were living below subsistence levels. Now, Rountree studied poverty in York and published his conclusions in 1901 in a book called Poverty, A Study of Town Life, and greatly influenced Winston Churchill, amongst others. He said, the book has fairly made my hair stand on end. He said, I call it a terrible and shocking thing. He said that although the British Empire is so large, they cannot find room to live in it. Although it is so magnificent, they would have had a better chance of happiness if they had been born cannibal islanders of the southern seas. Although its science is so profound, they would have been more healthy if they had been subjects of Hardy Canute. To an official of the Midland Conservative Association, he wrote in December 1901, I see little glory in an empire which can rule the waves and is unable to flush its sewers. And the answer to all these problems is to organize better and to increase the role of the state, to plan better and make British institutions more efficient. And this united people in all parties and was an important intellectual influence behind the Haldane Committee. 
It united radical conservatives, particularly those involved in the Boer War, such as Lord Milner, a member of the Lloyd George War Cabinet, and Leopold Amory, a junior minister of the government, army reformers, such as Haldane himself, and Maurice Hankey, the first cabinet secretary, and Fabian socialists, such as Beatrice Webb, a member of the Haldane Committee, whose influence was fundamental in the final report. And the report criticised the makeshift arrangements of the pre-war cabinet system as leading to overlapping obscurity and confusion in the function of departments. The system uh, badly needed rationalisation, and the committee produced three proposals to achieve this end. The first was the size of the cabinet should be reduced, not to the five or six of the wartime cabinet, but to perhaps ten or at most twelve. The second was the size of the department should be such that a single cabinet minister responsible to parliament could handle all of its business. The third, and perhaps the proposal by which it is best remembered, was that the tasks of each government department should be organised so that it had as homogeneous a set of functions as possible, and in particular the allocation of functions should be in terms of services, such as education, health and so on, not in terms of client groups, such as, for example, children and the unemployed, nor in terms of areas such as Scotland, Northern Ireland, London and so on. And a cabinet based on services rather than client groups was a key element in Beatrice Webb's famous minority report to the Poor Law Commission in 1909 and was essential if expertise were to be brought to bear on social problems. Otherwise, you'd have unnecessary duplication. If, for example, you had departments for pensioners, younger people, the unemployed, and so on, each of these departments might, in theory, require a policy team leading on different aspects of concessionary travel, and that would be very wasteful. Now, Beatrice Webb and others believe the territorial departments could be abolished by a scheme of legislative devolution of the type uh, initiated by the Blair government in 1998. But we found devolution does not do away with the need for territorial ministries in the non-English parts of the country. So that recommendation of Haldane has not been followed in any systematic way, because we've, of course, got cabinet ministers for the non-English parts of the United Kingdom. And indeed, I believe someone said in the 1970s the Secretary of the Environment could be renamed after devolution Secretary of State for England, since his responsibilities are largely confined to England. The same, no doubt, is true of health, education and agriculture. And we've had occasionally ad hoc arrangements and ministers for London a minister for Merseyside, Michael Heseltine, and Lord Hailsham in the 1960s, briefly a cabinet minister for the North East. Now, I think a more important criticism is that the Haldane Committee did not fully appreciate that the first and third of the proposals are to some extent conflicting. Is a small cabinet of 10 or 12 members sufficient to contain the ministers of all the major departments dealing with public services? It seems if you're going to reduce the cabinet in size, you either have to group departments together so you've got fewer of them, as Edward Heath did in 1970 with his super departments, or you have a Lloyd George-type cabinet in which ministers of some departments are left outside. Now, Hankey, the first cabinet secretary, whose evidence was very important in the report, favoured the Lloyd George alternative. And he wanted the wartime system continued in peacetime. And he said the advantage of that was that non-departmental ministers were in a position to view the problems of the country as a whole, freed from departmental burdens, rather look than looking at them primarily through departmental spectacles. The problem, of course, is the departmental ministers would then have to defend in Parliament policies they might have been opposed to, 
which they had played little role in formulating, and in the absence of knowledge of the wider policy background which had influenced the Cabinet in coming to its decision. Moreover, and this is a crucial criticism of the report, I think, there's a fundamental difference between Cabinet government in peacetime from Cabinet government in wartime. Because in peacetime, we have a parliamentary system of government. In wartime, much of parliamentary activity is in abeyance. There's no official opposition, and the energies of parliament and government alike are concentrated on one aim, which is victory. In peacetime, that is not so. There's no single definite agreed aim, and the policies of departmental ministers outside the cabinet, therefore, cannot be related to that single aim. There has, to, there, there has to somehow create a harmony between conflicting aims, and much of the discussion in cabinets how to balance these conflicting aims. And for that, you need cabinet discussion, and ministers outside the cabinet would otherwise feel they were in the position of supplicants in relation to a cabinet in which they are not represented. And it's largely because of this sort of consideration that advocates of the smaller cabinet have never made much headway except in times of war and the economic emergency of 1931 when for a brief time we had a national cabinet of just 10 members. But I think there's an even more basic criticism of the functional criterion because it's never precisely clear what a function actually is. A function does not appear before us as precisely labelled. Functions have to be labelled by human beings and there may be no obvious way of doing it, nor perhaps any objective way of doing it. Is, for example, housing a function, or is it part of a wider function called environment, which would include local government, planning, and the environment, all essential concomitants of an effective housing policy? Is health a discrete function, or part of a wider function, including social care? Are universities a discrete function, or are, are they, as they have been on different occasions, part of either education or even of business? Is aviation a function, or is it part of the wider function of transport or industry? Is agriculture a function, or should it be grouped with trade? The answer is by no means obvious. Are ethnic relations a function? Is energy a function? How are we to tell what criteria should we use? Now, all these issues, of course, came to the fore during the Blair government, when there was an emphasis on joined-up government, or the interconnectedness of functions. And this was a useful exercise, and probably Brexit has increased the need for departments to work more collaboratively together. But there has to be a limit to joined-up government, because if character extremes, it would, as Lord Butler once pointed out to me, uh, logically mean there was just one government department dealing with every single public service uh, a whole. So the great danger is that the large departments of joined-up government prove too difficult to manage and to be answerable to Parliament. And that, I think, is why Edward Heath's experiment in 1970 did not continue. So the functional idea has serious weaknesses. It tends to underestimate the importance of joined-up government, and it assumes the concept of a function is much clearer than it actually is. The truth is, so it seems to me, there's no single overriding criterion for the organisation of government departments, and indeed no perfect way of organising them. So much depends on political vicissitudes. In 1964, for example, a new department, the Department for Economic Affairs, was created largely to accommodate the claims of George Brown, deputy leader of the Labour Party. Then a second function is public clamour. For example, for Department of Energy in 1974, Dexu in 2016. Earlier on, a, a Minister for the Coordination of Defence in 1936, a post filled by Sir Thomas Inskip, who Churchill rather un unkindly compared as the most remarkable appointment since the Roman Emperor Caligula made his horse a consul. 
and then a Minister of Supply in 1939, and Mr. Leslie Bergen, another horse from Caligula's well-stocked stable. <laughs> a third factor, of course, relates to our state of knowledge. New issues continually arise which must be dealt with by governments. In the 20th century, unemployment came to be a government responsibility, then the energy crisis, then terrorism. And it's odd that, the, uh, considering its origins, which lay in a certain public dissatisfaction with the workings of government, the Haldane Report can be criticised for imagining that matters of cabinet government can be discussed in isolation from outside forces, from political vicissitudes and the wishes of the public. And it seems to me the central issue discussed by Haldane, the proper organisation of government departments, is a non-issue. Uh, and uh, since then, governments have operated by what one critic of the report referred to as the elevation of an uneasy compromise into an, un into an ideal type. It is the British birthright to have the best of inconsistent worlds, and kind of, if you like, the Boris Johnson philosophy of cakeism, you can have your cake and eat it. Of course, we'll see, soon see whether that is actually possible with Brexit. Now, the Haldane report does not deal with what seem to me the two essential weaknesses in our system of cabinet government. And the first is that there is a hole in the centre, that the Prime Minister does not have sufficient resources or capabilities to lead a collective government and implement a collective strategy. And the second is that cabinet ministers have insufficient advice to enable them to contribute effectively to collective discussions in the cabinet. Now, much is written about presidential or prime ministerial government, which is said, according to taste, to have begun with Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher, Edward Heath, Harold Macmillan, Winston Churchill, Lloyd George, Gladstone, or Sir Robert Peel. They've all been accused of being presidential or dictatorial. But cabinet government presupposes a strong prime minister. A weak prime minister means disorganised cabinet government. But the prime minister has far less institutional backup than most of her counterparts, not only in presidential systems such as the United States or France, but in parliamentary systems such as Germany, Australia or Canada. The German chancellor has a large office servicing her. The Australian and Canadian prime ministers have large departments of the prime minister and cabinet, containing over a thousand people, although admittedly the function of these departments include those subsumed in Britain in the Cabinet Office. And one may contrast this with the small number serving the British Prime Minister. In the last year of Tony Blair's period of office, for example, there was a Chief of Staff, a Deputy Chief of Staff, a Policy Directorate of 13, mostly junior people, a Chief Strategy Advisor and a small Research and Information Unit. Much is written about the disadvantages of bureaucracy but a Prime Minister needs a bureaucracy of her own if she is to be able to controvert the arguments of departmental ministers assisted by their own departmental bureaucracies and if she is to prepare a collective strategy for the government and ensure it is carried out. Now the role of the Cabinet Secretary originally was to coordinate and arbitrate between departments and for his authority to be accepted in this role he needs to be seen as neutral between departments. And Hankey warned against the Cabinet Secretary coming to be involved in matters which fell constitutionally within the orbit of departmental ministers. But he, and I suspect later Cabinet Secretaries, have taken little notice of his warning, and the Cabinet Secretary seems to have taken on from the time of Hankey the role of policy advisor to the Prime Minister, almost a permanent secretary to the Prime Minister, uh, briefing the Prime Minister on policy. Now, a policy role makes the Cabinet Secretary unneutral between departments. He becomes a spokesman for a particular point of view, that of the Prime Minister. 
One former cabinet secretary told a recent writer on the cabinet that all four of the very different prime ministers he had served were dissatisfied with the central machinery of government. And uh, some cabinet secretaries have acted as if they were permanent secretaries of a prime minister's department rather than servants of the cabinet as a whole. One former cabinet secretary offered us a Humphrey-like solution to the conundrum by telling the writer on the cabinet that he was secretary of the cabinet, but secretary to the prime minister. Now, the introduction of a prime minister's department may be a step too far, um, but perhaps there is a case for us to follow the Australian model and having someone, whoever, whatever he or she is called, whose loyalty is primarily to the prime minister rather than the cabinet as a whole, and making that a political appointment, though it could be made from within the civil service. But that person's job would be to service the prime minister, just as the job of a permanent secretary is to service the department of the minister in charge of the department. There'd then be a separation between the cabinet secretary, who'd serve the cabinet, and the prime minister's secretary. And the essential quality of such a person would be uh, sufficient independence and standing. There was perhaps the nearest we got to that was in 1970 when Edward Heath appointed as head of the Central Policy Review Staff, so-called think tank, Lord Rothschild, who was in fact a Labour supporter. And that worked well till late 1973 when Lord Rothschild made a public speech saying Britain faced economic decline and was publicly rebuked by Heath. Whether he was right or wrong, he should not have spoken in public but told the Prime Minister privately and the relation then broke down. Um, the qualities for such a post, I think, are best described by Sir Alan Brooke, who was chief of the Imperial General Staff during the war, who was very rude to Churchill in the company of other ministers, and ruder than he had any right to be, and Churchill was very upset. And one of Churchill's advisers said to Brooke, the PM is frightfully upset and says you hate him. And Brooke replied, I don't hate him, I adore him tremendously, I do love him, but the day I say I agree with him when I don't, is the day he must get rid of me, because I am no use to him any more. And perhaps that should be pinned on the wall of everyone who advises a minister or prime minister. Because the great danger of prime ministers is they are cocooned, surrounded by people who are in awe of them, tell them they're right, even when they think he's wrong, and they come to think they are infallible and indispensable, which leads to their downfall. Asquith in 1916, Lloyd George in 1922, Neville Chamberlain in 1940, Harold Macmillan in 1973, Edward Heath in 1974, and Margaret Thatcher in 1990. Now, um, the second um, weakness, I think, of the system is that it doesn't give um, advice to uh, ministers on collective matters. They get first-class advice on departmental matters, and every civil servant has a PhD in her knapsack on her special subject but officials are not equipped to give advice on the collective matters coming before the cabinet. And this makes it difficult for ministers to contribute to collective discussions. The health secretary will be expertly advised on health matters, but not, for instance, on foreign policy or on education or, or similar problems. So the cabinet degenerates under prime ministers of both parties into a mere federation of departments. And that was the verdict of Crossman, Richard Crossman, who before entering government in 1964 had seen it as prime ministerial, but changed his mind afterward, the experience of the Wilson government, and said it was a federation of departments. And Nigel Lawson in his memoirs says, 
that much government business took the form of bilateral negotiation between a departmental minister and the prime minister, and the cabinet was a time to relax. And that does not make for good collective decision-making. And I think that can be remedied by the proper use of special advisors, senior people who could provide expertise in a field where the civil service lacks it. And that was the old system, I think. Uh, Nicholas Caldor, economic advisor in the first Wilson government. Brian Abel Smith, advisor on health matters in the second Wilson government, would have knowledge of a comparative or historical kind which civil service, civil services, civil servants may lack. And I think these two reforms are very necessary. Let me conclude by saying the Haldane report had little immediate influence, and when Haldane became Lord Chancellor for the second time in 1924, he seems to have done little to convert it into a Ministry of Justice, which was one of the proposals in the report. But the issues of Haldane came to fore again in the years 1961 to 79, when there were similar worries about the inefficiency of British institutions. Again, it was said Britain had fallen behind other countries economically, and this was attributed by many to the amateurism of the British establishment, the civil service and industrial management in particular. Harold Macmillan in his later years, Harold Wilson and Edward Heath, all agreed on the importance of institutional reform to remedy British inefficiencies and help achieve a better society. And this movement perhaps reached its apogee in a white paper published by Edward Heath's government in 1971, entitled The Reorganization of Central Government. And this, like Haldane, praised a functional approach to government and said that policy analysis and formulation needed to be improved and proposed institutional means for achieving that end. But in 1979, there was a radical change with the advent of power of Margaret Thatcher, who did not share the view that institutional change was the means to a better society. She took the view, probably rightly, that shifting the institutional furniture was not of much use, and there were two alternatives and much better ways of improving the performance of public services. The first was to privatise them, and the second was to bring the methods of private business into the public services and to have much more intermingling between the two sectors. And both John Major and Tony Blair agreed with the second of those propositions, if not the first. But, as the former Cabinet Secretary Lord Bridges had said in 1964, a civil servant transplanted into business could not, without a considerable apprenticeship, take up the businessman's job, and the same is true the other way round. In any case, the task of improving the performance of the public services by bringing the methods of private business into the public sector is in a sense ironic since private business management was widely held to have failed Britain in the post-war era. In March 1945, Keynes wrote a memo to the cabinet which prefigured Britain's post-war history. He said, if by some sad geographical slip, the American Air Force, it is too late now to hope for much from the enemy, if the American Air Force were to destroy every factory in the northeast coast, and in Lancashire, at an hour when the directors were sitting there and no one else, we should have nothing to fear. And therefore, uh, I think given the poor performance of so much British management since 1945, the faith by politicians of all parties in businessmen and women in government is somewhat touching. Now, both Margaret Thatcher and the Prime Ministers who have followed her have concentrated less on institutional reform, but rather on social and economic reform, and in Margaret Thatcher's case, in particular, reform of the trade unions, which she rightly, in my view, regardless fundamental. 
and they're right, I think, in regarding the problems in our society as arising not so much from institutional inadequacies as from problems in our social relationships and genuine conflicts of interest and disagreements about policy aims. And they have a much more skeptical view of the state than was held in the first 80 years of the 20th century, believing that instead of increasing its tasks, the state should learn to do less and do it better. And perhaps differences in institutional structure matter much less than Haldane and his latter-day imitators such as Edward Heath have thought. And it's difficult to believe that a particular institutional structure can do much to improve the efficiency of the British economy or the resolution of difficult social problems. Finally, it is worth noting the Haldane report inculcated the same philosophy of bureaucratic paternalism which governed Britain from 1945 till the time of Margaret Thatcher the product of a time when the officer class knew what was best for the rest of us, a philosophy that took a beating after 2008. And many will remember Michael Gove's comment, which I think has been widely misinterpreted, that we've had enough of experts. And he said what he meant was experts from those international bodies with acronyms that had got things wrong before, such as the IMF. I think he had a point. And nearly 60 years ago, Harold Macmillan said the same, at a meeting of the Council of Europe in August 1950, when it was proposed to establish a European coal and steel community, precursor of the European Union, to be administered by an unelected and unaccountable high authority, precursor to the European Commission. He said, in the reaction against democratic weakness, men have sought safety in the technocrats. There is nothing new in this. It is as old as Plato. Frankly, it is not attractive to our British point of view. We have not overthrown the divine right of kings in order to fall down before the divine right of experts. This is not a purely British point of view. It is shared by all those who are truly attached to democracy and parliamentary institutions. And perhaps if the leaders of the European Union had taken more notice of Macmillan's warning, we would not now be facing Brexit. Because whereas scientists have objective knowledge subject to clear criteria of refutation, People like me, students of government and social sciences, do not have that sort of knowledge. We are not experts in the same way. And our findings on such matters as the economic consequences of Brexit, the social effects of a particular approach to crime, the political effects of devolution, are bound to be more tentative. Too many of us, and I am as guilty as anyone else, uh, treat our very tentative conclusions as having much more weight than they actually do can bear. And of course, the media press us to a certainty Perhaps, which perhaps we do not feel. Fortunately, most sensible people do not take academics like me too seriously. Uh, during the time of Haldane, people really believed there was a science of public administration, just as now many believe, though perhaps fewer than before the 2008 crash, that there's an objective science of economics parallel to that of physics or chemistry. I spoke at the beginning of the influence of Beatrice Webb on the Haldanes. Beatrice was described by H.G. Wells in his novel, The New Machiavelli, as one of the amateur, unpaid precursors of the bureaucratic administrative class of the future. She was a powerful networker, um, and she certainly did believe that scientific administration was possible and that Parliament should not be allowed to interfere with it. Perhaps that was why she came to admire Stalin's Soviet Union in the 1930s in her book, Soviet Communism, A New Civilization. Certainly no question of parliamentary interference there. Uh, Haldane and Beatrice Webb, it has been said, found each other by mutual magnetism of intellect, high-minded, 
proudly independent of party, steeped in German philosophy and literature, living for the state, but destined never to be truly welcomed by it. Lord Bridges said that Haldane had some difficulty in understanding the mental processes and reactions of the common man. I think the same can be said of Beatrice Webb. The question of the best organisation of government departments is probably a non-question, but to the extent it can be answered at all, it is certain that it cannot be answered in abstraction from specific political situations, from the pressures of Parliament and public at particular times. And it's because Haldane and Beatrice Webb had so little understanding of parliamentary government and the popular pressures inherent in democratic government that their report, in the words of, words of one critic, had a breathtaking mandate, a splendid career, and a ludicrous afterlife. Indeed, perhaps it vies with the Fulton report on the civil service of 1968 as being the most useless official report of the 20th century. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bernard. <laughs>